This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon. Demetrio Munoz. Demetrio was at the forefront of Spanish diplomacy in the early 1620s and was a big fan of the Spanish match. When all that fell apart, he decided to retire from diplomacy and became heavily involved in the Amsterdam Stock Exchange instead. In the end, he blew all his money on this newfangled pig feed called Game Slop. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. More on that later, but for now, enjoy episode 28 of the Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Thirty Years' War. So last time we brought the Dutch-Spanish War, or the Eighty Years' War, or whatever you want to call it, up to 1625, and we noted that in that dire time of Dutch need, help was at hand, thanks to the changing international situation. This change was spearheaded by England, the same England which for so long had spurned any idea of active involvement in the war in the Holy Roman Empire. These changes didn't occur overnight in England, they were a result instead of the failed policy on King James's part. King James had aimed at drawing Spain into a marital alliance with his own son and heir, Prince Charles. That this aim was not fulfilled was not due to a lack of trying, and for the next two episodes, we're going to examine how this very important policy line took root, how it was pursued, what the people of Britain thought about it, and why it eventually failed. Without any further ado, I'd love to just jump into this fascinating story. I think you're really, really going to find it interesting. And I will now take you back just a little bit to the year 1614. In the year 1614, Frederick V of the Palatinate married Elizabeth Stuart, the daughter of King James, This marital alliance contained two important caveats, which the subsequent storm of conflict has largely obscured. The first point was that James didn't marry his daughter into the Palatine family 
to support a war against the Holy Roman Emperor, or to upset the Habsburgs. The anti-Habsburg schemes of the Palatine family, if Frederick or his ministers eagerly pressed them upon the Stuart court when the marriage was negotiated, didn't factor into King James's belief that Frederick, the Elector Palatine, would be a suitable match. James didn't want a war with the Habsburgs. His marital bond with the Calvinist Palatine Elector was actually meant to ensure peace within the religious divides of Europe, and above all, in the Holy Roman Empire. This is demonstrated by the second caveat. Frederick's match with Elizabeth was only part of what was meant to be a two-part plan. James had married his daughter to the most well-connected Protestant potentate in Europe, and he intended, shortly thereafter, to marry his son Charles to the proudly Catholic Spanish princess Isabella. In the event, James's daughter's marriage to Frederick would entrap English interests in the early phases of the Thirty Years' War, causing James no end of problems and headaches, and leading one historian to remark that the marriage into the Palatine family was James's fatal mistake. Furthermore, part two of James's plan to balance Christendom upon an English scales was dealt a heavy blow in late 1623, when the negotiations for an Anglo-Spanish marriage fell apart. Shortly after watching his plans for maintaining peace in Europe go up in smoke, James died, to be replaced by his son Charles, a far more active player in Europe. English diplomacy and the King's convictions ensured that London remained a critical actor, even if the fully committed English invasion, which the Elector Palatine had so yearned for, never came. The decade between Frederick's marriage to Elizabeth Stuart and the collapse of the Anglo-Spanish marriage negotiations reads very much like a period of increasing English involvement and interest in European affairs, particularly once the Bohemian Revolt dragged Frederick into its orbit. That his son-in-law had entered into open opposition to the Holy Roman Emperor was not a state of affairs which King James had foreseen, and he responded to these unsettling developments by urging peace and submission on Frederick's side while he set to the task of mediating a just peace. Frederick's acceptance of the Bohemian crown had seriously hampered James's plans, because it was impossible to imagine Spain staying out of this conflict between a Habsburg and a Wittelsbach. For the sake of the Habsburg interest in Europe, Spanish money and materials would surely pour over the Alps and into Central Europe, and if that happened, the marriage partners that James so desired would be facing down his son-in-law across the battlefield. With his responsibilities and his honour so challenged and his attentions so divided, it proved immensely difficult for James to choose one side or the other. He seemed to believe that England would be able to mediate some kind of peace, at least until his plans blew up in his face. Throughout this intensive period, from 1618 to 23 or so, James faced down some rowdy members of Parliament, some radical Puritans, and a lot of unfavourable propaganda in his quest to keep England at peace and save some portion of his original plans. As the historian Robert Zaller has noted, though, it was England's potential weight in the balance of war, and not the sincerity of her desire for peace, which made her a factor, inevitably a party, in the reckoning on all sides. This is a roundabout way of saying that to gain a fuller appreciation of European diplomacy during the period of 1618-25, to 25, 
it's important we dwell for some time on the role that England and King James played in the early phase of the Thirty Years' War. The regular correspondence between King James and Frederick, the rise of anti-Spanish and anti-Catholic feeling in England, the impact of Anglo-Spanish diplomacy on the initial shape of the conflict, and the role of King James in its development, these are all issues and questions which we must address in the course of this episode. Moreover, to understand more completely why Frederick's repeated entreaties to his father-in-law failed, it is necessary to comprehend the lengths to which James had gone in order to make his dream of a Spanish match a reality. King James let go of this dream only very slowly and, predictably enough, only very bitterly. But until he did so, Frederick wrote in vain for a more concrete mission to save his homeland from destruction and to shield his wife from disgrace. King James is unsurprisingly a focal point of this episode with other important players, including the Spanish ambassador to England, a man by the name of Count Gondomar, and other English politicians or courtiers who left us with records or accounts of this fascinating era of British history. We last saw James solidifying control over the British Isles, the first monarch outside of legend and myth to do so. This significant feat, though, didn't grant James a free pass, as the historian Charles Howard Carter has noted, Almost from birth, King James lived nearly constantly, and somehow managed to survive, in a vortex of violence, hostility, and general mistreatment. More or less continually, someone or other was trying, with varying degrees of success and failure, to kidnap him, imprison him, stab him, or blow him up with all the knights and burgesses of the commons and all the peers of the realm. He was, in his own day and has been since, handled almost as roughly in print. What has led historians to treat King James so roughly in print, though? We should consider first the physical characteristics of the man who would rule as King of England and Scotland. According to the historian Mark L. Schwarz, James was maligned by The strange walk caused by rickets that gave the king a kind of Charlie Chaplin-esque gait, the tongue that was too big for his mouth, which caused him to eat his drinks, the taffeta-like skin which... He never washed except for his fingers. It was enough for the famous satirical tract, 1066 and all that, to note that James slobbered at the mouth and had favourites, thus he was a bad king. James was also said to be lacking in moral fibre, and was so terrified of plots against his life that he wore heavy reinforced clothing and had a habit of piling mattresses in front of his door in the event that he believed his life was in danger. On the one hand, such behaviour was understandable, considering the trauma which the gunpowder plot must have left upon his mind. To his courtiers, though, this behaviour was unacceptable. One noted that King James was the most cowardly man that I ever knew. He could not have endured a soldier or to see men drilled. To hear of war was death to him, and how he tormented himself with fear of some sudden mischief may be proved by his great quilted doublets, pistol-proof, as also his strange eyeing of strangers with a continual fearful observation. His fear of assassination played no small part in his foreign policy. It may be remembered that King James lived and reigned in an era where monarchs could be, and were, assassinated. One such casualty was James's royal peer, 
King Henry IV of France, who had been assassinated in 1610. On hearing the news of Henry's death, a courtier noted, James, refusing at first to believe the news, was profoundly moved, not from love of the French king, for he had none, but from fear and horror of assassination, a horror increased hundredfold because the victim was a king. This last sentence is important because in Henry's death James saw a pattern, which didn't exclude his position or person in the slightest. Henry had been an enemy of the Catholic Hasbury interest, and so he had been removed. If James adopted his policy or behaviour, then hidden Habsburg blades might also find their way across the channel and into the king's heart. James was so taken by the possibility that he might be next on the hit list of the Habsburgs that he instructed his travelling ambassadors to remain wary of news regarding any plots against his life. Predictably enough, when news emerged that English ambassadors would pay a high price for this valuable information, dealers and such intel began cropping up at a suspicious rate across the continent. We should bear in mind that knowledge about James's unfortunate relationship with terrible dramatic plots against him in his realm was widespread, making the exaggeration and subsequent selling of these imagined plots all the more easier. To add to the picture of a troubled, paranoid, slobbery domestic reign, James's reputation in the realm of foreign policy is also shrouded in a pile of criticism and controversy. Arguably the root cause of the negative interpretation of James's acumen in this regard come from his relationship with the Spanish ambassador to England, Count Gondomar, who we met earlier in this episode, and who arrived in England in 1613. Barring a brief absence between 1618-20, to 20, he stayed in England until 1622. Count Gondomar, it is claimed, wielded an influence over the English king far at odds with his station. Furthermore, the Spanish ambassador is supposed to have manipulated the king and made use of threats from Madrid to force him to do Spain's bidding at the expense of his struggling son-in-law Frederick, whom Spain wished to destroy, of course. The image of King James meeting Gondomar for the first time with his hat in his hand is thrown back at the king. Look here how the craven King of England debases and supplicates himself before the servant of the King of Spain. Yet, as Carter has quite reasonably pointed out, King James always took off his hat in the presence of an ambassador unless he was mad at him or his sovereign. King James was not being craven, he was only being polite. Forgive me now as I butcher Count Gondomar's name, Don Diego Sarmiento de Cura was ennobled as Count Gondomar in 1617, and he served as Spanish ambassador to England from 1613 to 22, whereupon he continued to serve in his return home as perhaps the only figure in Madrid who properly understood the English mindset until he died in 1626. Gondomar served King Philip III of Spain at a time when Spain had resolved its issues with the Austrian branch and was determined to come to Vienna's aid. This meant involvement in the empire, and an increase in Spanish influence along the Rhine, as we've seen. To Count Gondomar, these developments meant that he was tasked with explaining and defending these policies to King James, while James, so long as he desired the marriage alliance, which seemed to be on the cards, would have to accept his explanations. As Carter has written... What was going to happen in Europe and to Europe was very much in the hands of the relatively few men who guided or influenced affairs of state 
in a few key capitals. None were more important than such men in Spain and England, widely regarded as the heads of the two protectorates over Catholic and Protestant Europe. Gondomar must certainly be counted among these few. What Gondomar and James accomplished over the years that the former served as ambassador was nothing short of extraordinary, but then again, Count Gondomar was an extraordinary individual. Carter wrote with his usual prose that in the case of Gondomar, There has probably never been a more able diplomat sent to England, nor a more influential one, nor one more passionately hated by so many Englishmen. This hatred was based largely on the erroneous belief, as we have seen, that Gondomar controlled and pulled the strings of James behind the scenes. Gondomar was hated by Englishmen because he manipulated the king, and because, at least until the arrangement collapsed, the Spanish nobleman was very good at his job. The impression that James was under the Spaniard's evil spell helped to foster the hostile English attitudes towards Gondomar. But, as the historian Gareth Mattingly has written, and as we will shortly discover, Gondomar's access to the king came less as a result of his schemes, and instead because the Spanish ambassador and King James were actually quite good friends and got along quite well together. As Mattingly wrote, The real key to Gondomar's success in England lay in his relation to James I. It was not a simple one. Certainly it was not, as has sometimes been represented, just the dominance of a weak character by a strong one, much less the gulling of a fool by a knave. James was a complex character in whom elements of weakness were surprisingly mixed with traits of real strength. Gondomar, at least, never made the mistake of underrating him, nor did he achieve his influence at a strike or storm the king's favour with a mixture of bullying and flattery. It was a work of years. In part, it was because Gondomar was able to make James like him. Indeed, there was no sinister secret to Gondomar's success. Both men thoroughly enjoyed the hunt and would spend several hours together during these activities. In addition, the more they grew to enjoy one another's company, the more eagerly they sought each other out. Both men enjoyed discussing history, and Gondomar was understandably alert to any news which James chose to impart. The ambassador and the king thus enjoyed a relationship based on mutual respect, and it certainly helped that James hosted private audiences with resident ambassadors, since Gondomar was able to further his relationship with the king during this process. As the king sought more earnestly to secure a Spanish marriage for his son, Gondomar's presence became, in turn, more sought after, and James relied on him to pass on messages and remain informed of Madrid's intentions. We're going to continue this story of Count Gondomar and King James in a sec, history friends, but first I want to just let you know about something that you may or may not be aware of. This podcast is on Patreon. And if you pay just a fiver a month, you can get an hour of extra content. If paying monthly is not your thing, you can pay for the year and get 5% off your bill. Patreon has been a godsend to me professionally, and obviously personally, because I don't have to be stressed about how to pay for bills. But really, it's helped me to bring When Diplomacy Fails podcast to the next level. And ever since we joined, about four years ago now, this podcast has gone from strength to strength. And I know these ads are annoying and you can skip them without feeling any guilt at all because the main reason I'm doing this podcast is because I really love doing it. 
and I really love bringing history to you guys as well, and for free, no less. Patreon is like that benefit that you get. It's like that perk, doing something you love and getting paid at the same time, just like all those online ads that are really dodgy seem to suggest is possible. But it is possible, and it has been possible thanks to your guys' support. So, for Poland is Not Yet Lost, a series which examines Poland's experience of the 18th century, and isn't all that depressing, but is certainly very interesting, head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Your generosity and support never ceases to amaze me, history friends, and I really can't thank you enough for it, especially in times like these. I really do have huge plans for When Diplomacy Fails in 2021, so don't think we're taking time out just because PhD is upon us. I would wager 2021 will be the best year yet, though I already promise you in advance there will be no nine weeks to run wild just in case you're worried about that kind of thing. Anyway, back to the show. Thanks so much for listening and supporting, and I hope you enjoy the second half of this episode. 
and it provides us with an indication of diplomatic protocol at the time. Rather than bribes to favour Spanish interests, these pensions should be viewed instead as a prerequisite to get anywhere in English court. As one ambassador from the Spanish Netherlands wrote at the time, In this country, if one wants to negotiate a matter, you have to put up the money. The Spanish were competing with Dutch pensions and rightly believed that if they refrained from spending money or tipping the English, then neither the statesman nor even the king would be inclined to listen to them. That said, while the list of men and women in Spanish pay was long, the payments were often several years in arrears. Most of the money was saved for the heads of James's administration, so the treasury lords, the chancellors and the foreign ministers. This latter point meant that when changes in major personnel occurred, the incoming minister would often inherit his predecessor's Spanish pension. Madrid appreciated that a refusal to pay could result in the minister adopting a more hostile than usual outlook towards Spain, but it was also accepted that the timely payment was no guarantee that England would be wholly favourable to Spanish designs. Carter compared the system here to the position of a hapless diner who must bribe a surly waiter with tips to avoid getting soup spilled on him. An amusing anecdote emerges from this controversy that once James's ambassador to Madrid, a man by the name of John Digby, learned of the existence of this list of Englishmen and Spanish pay, he sought to communicate it faithfully to his king. When he presented the list to his king, James expressed surprise that so many Englishmen were in receipt of Spanish pay. James might have expressed surprise because he could well have believed that he was the only Englishman in receipt of such a pension. Indeed, Digby only discovered that his king received Spanish money once he deciphered the list, a fact which must have made for a somewhat awkward conversation when Digby set to the task of explaining the document's contents to his king. So, while of course it's possible to speak of a Spanish party in James's court, a Spanish party being a group who would subsequently become the subject of much ridicule and bad press, the reality was less straightforward. The group contained its measure of Catholics, and it was moved to argue for friendship with Spain, not by a plethora of bribes, but by the fact that their political opponents in Scotland would gain if the alternative, a French alliance, was adopted. Into the group who were not so fond of Spain, we can lump English Puritans, opportunistic merchants as well, who wanted to initiate an open, undeclared war against Spain and the Indies. The label Spanish Party can tend to obscure the fact that these individuals were by no means unabashedly pro-Spanish, nor were they incapable of changing their minds, as we'll see. Instead, they advocated peace and wished to maintain the status quo, rather than embark upon a reckless war. Attitudes were sharpened in England with the eruption of the Bohemian Revolt in May 1618. This direct challenge to Habsburg authority couldn't go unanswered by Spain, but even while this need for intervention was keenly felt, an anxious eye was kept upon the Dutch. With the 12 years' truce due to expire in three years, it was critical that the Bohemian Revolt was resolved before that time. This mission to resolve the Bohemian Revolt was massively complicated by the acceptance, by James's son-in-law, of the Bohemian crown in September 1619. At that point, with the Hungarians on the march, Vienna beleaguered, and Frederick announcing his intention to march to the Bohemians' defence, the crisis was felt all the more deeply in Spain 
because Gondomar had left London for a time in 1618. Apparently, he didn't have much of a knack for timing, and he wouldn't be back in James's presence until March 1620. During that waited time of about two years, the critically important question of what the English would do was very difficult to answer. It was while Gondomar was in Madrid, and while the Bohemian Revolt transformed into a conflict which seemed to challenge English religious and moral sensibilities, that the anti-Spanish and anti-Catholic sentiments of James's subjects began to intensify. This process was given a notable boost thanks to the publication of Vox Populi, a commentary written by Thomas Scott in 1620. This notorious pamphlet purported to show exactly what went on behind closed doors in Madrid. It claimed to be the actual report that Gondomar had written to his masters in Spain, and was tactfully published to coincide with the ambassador's return to London in spring 1620. Vox Populi had not been Scott's first foray into the realm of propaganda pamphlets, but it was undoubtedly his most effective and infamous, a fact which is all the more incredible when it is noted that the pamphlet contained not a shred of truth, and yet was wholly accepted as canon by a large number of enraged Englishmen. The worst confessions and the most insulting assumptions were placed in Gondomar's mouth, that is, in Vox Populi, and with the immediate success of Scott's pamphlet, Gondomar's comparatively small voice would never have stood a chance. Indeed, Gondomar was justifiably furious at the author, and in the words of a Venetian ambassador who was somewhat pleased to see his rival brought so low, Vox Populi severely castigates the Spanish ambassador here, who therefore foams with wrath in every direction, and it is said that he has sent it to the king to make complaint. This has transpired and given rise to much comment. Average English citizens were not the only ones to come under the spell. Country gentleman and self-styled antiquarian, Sir Simmons de Use, a wealthy Puritan MP, was also moved to note in his journal that I perused a notable book styled Vox Populi, penned by one Thomas Scott, a minister, marvellously displaying the subtle policies and wicked practices of the Count of Gondomar, the resident ambassador here from the King of Spain in prevailing with King James for connivance towards the Papists, under the colourable pretense of our prince's matching with the Infanta Maria of Spain, and that he laboured to accomplish two things, without which the state of England could not be ruined. The first to breed distaste and jealousies in the king towards his best subjects, under the false and adulterate nickname of Puritans, and so to prevent all future parliaments, and secondly, to nourish jars and differences between Great Britain and the United States of the Low Countries, that, so being first divided each from the other, they might afterwards be singly and assuredly ruined by Spain and the House of Austria. Pamphlets like these were problematic for King James when he was attempting to tread a neutral course. When this neutral course was believed to be the only way to restore Frederick to his Palatinate, Scott's Vox Populi propaganda pamphlet jeopardised this plan. Raising the temperature in England to a white-hot intensity, Scott believed his work was done, and individuals like De Use never suspected that they had been duped, preferring to believe instead that they had been made privy to the dark secrets which constituted the Spanish way of doing business. And De Use continued, But the king himself, hoping to get the prince-elector his son-in-law to be restored to the Palatinate by an amicable treaty, was much incensed at the sight of it, that being... Vox Populi, 
as being published at an unseasonable time. Though otherwise it seemed to proceed from an honest English heart. There was therefore so much and so speedy search made for the author of it, as he scarcely escaped the hands of the pursuants, who, had they taken him, he had certainly tasted of a sharp censure. For the Spanish ambassador himself did at this time suppose and feared the people's eyes to be opened so much with the perusal of this book, and their hearts to be so extremely irritated with that discovery of his villainous practices, as he caused his house for a while by a guard of men. It is possible to note some overlapping features in this anti-Spanish propaganda penned by Scott, and in the anti-Regent propaganda penned by Dutch Orangists. In both cases, the suspicious fifth column of Catholics, or Papists, was singled out for ridicule. Gondomar's aim, so Scott claimed, was to serve England up on a Catholic plate to the Pope, and thus to the King of Spain, that universal monarch of the world. Thereafter, the reformed Christians in all sections would be suppressed, and the meek English king would remain cooperative as long as he got that Spanish marriage which Gondomar had promised. Scott's aims were to fire up Protestants and to enhance the reputation of the Puritans, just as Catholics and Spaniards were dragged down. It is difficult to say for certain exactly where Scott fit on the religious spectrum, but he claimed to speak for mainstream Protestantism, even if his views appear to lean outside of the Anglican creed. In the minds of the average zealous Protestant Englishman, he had certainly been given reason enough to see Catholics as Spaniards in disguise. The gunpowder plot remained a striking example of papist plotting, and it was imagined that such a violent attack was surely only the first step towards a forcible reintroduction of Catholicism to the country, whereupon all closet Catholics in England would rise up and aid the invader in the process. This scenario, nightmarish and impossible though it may sound, was just as likely as Johann van Alden Barnveldt's guilt had been under the charge of attempting to betray the Dutch Republic to the Spanish enemy which he had fought for so many years. Alden Barnveldt, if you'll recall from the previous episodes, had been beheaded. Could Britain's Catholic population be in for such violent repression as well? A recent article has demonstrated that King James proved pretty adept at balancing the threats he perceived in Catholicism as well as Puritanism, but could King James withstand the tide of popular fury if it grew too intense? Those that bought into such negative views of Spanish intentions overrated Spanish zeal and determination. In reality, Madrid's diplomatic efforts were invested in more enthusiastically than any efforts to blow up the Parliament or the King. Queen Anne of England had, after all, been followed with rumours about her Catholic leanings for most of her life, and her personal beliefs remained somewhat challenging to untangle. Whispers of Anne's closet Catholicism made belief in further unsavoury conspiracies easier, especially for those that had so rounded on James in the first place for his pro-Spanish policy. As the historian Albert J. Lumi has noted, For the alert Puritan, there would be the threat of a papal influence secretly on the king's councils, and there would be the inference that the mother of the royal children might seek to influence them towards her own view. Indeed, if even the queen was pulling the Catholic strings unbeknownst to her husband, then that surely explains why the king's apparently unshakable convictions regarding the need for a Spanish marriage endured for so long. Perhaps it was Anne who desired the marriage, 
and perhaps this was because she intended to restore her adopted country to the Roman Church. The king's people could imagine these terrible schemes, but James was determined to pursue the foreign policy which promised the greatest rewards. He had, after all, enjoyed some success and popularity for it in the past. He had ended the war with Spain in one of his first acts as King of England in 1604. He had brokered peace between Denmark and Sweden in 1613. He mediated a settlement between the conflicting parties during the Ulick Cleave Crisis in 1614 as well. If you can remember the Ulick Cleave Crisis, that feels like years ago. And in 1618, King James also attempted and failed to secure a lasting peace before the Bohemian Revolt got out of hand. He was supported in these ventures by another important aspect of the realm's propaganda machine, the theatre. And at that time, at least, this organ of the state was directed in his favour. From the time of his ascension as king to his death, James approved several plays which depicted the King of England as a peacemaker, and which were eagerly lapped up by enthused English audiences. The Peacemaker, released in 1619, The World Lost at Tennis in 1620, and The Triumphs of Integrity in 1623, were all written and performed in a manner which portrayed the King's diplomatic ability and his desire for peace in a positive light. Another play, The Triumphs of Peace, in 1620, came at the perfect time for a king angered at the rise in anti-Spanish sentiment and determined to stay the course. These performances emphasised the horrors of war, the values of peace, and the unquestioned talent that the king had for balancing those two questions so skilfully. Yet even with these aids, James began to find it impossible to stem the tide of anti-Spanish and anti-Catholic sentiment. According to the historian J.P. Keenan, this is not surprising. Keenan noted that King James's love of compromise was jarring in a world of violent extremes, and his motto, Blessed are the peacemakers, was inappropriate to a nation which had been in a state of emergency for half a century, and to an era in which the potentiality of military command was still one of the most important attributes of a ruler. It would therefore be easy to criticise James as tone-deaf and ignorant of the prevailing winds within his kingdom. Indeed, it's a difficult question to fairly answer even today. The horrors of war which James rightly detested, notwithstanding, if he had intervened in force to save his son-in-law, the Palatinate may have been preserved, Spain may have been pushed back, and the Thirty Years' War may have been arrested at this early stage. There's a lot of ifs and buts in that situation, for sure, but this was a scenario that was passionately believed in by Frederick, as well as those bitter courtiers of the king who urged their lord to do something, anything, which would show his zeal for his family if nothing else. James's daughter wrote to James's advisor in late 1620, urging the king to show himself a loving father to us and not suffer his children's inheritance to be taken away, and adding, Tell the king that the enemy will more regard his blows than his words. Yet, even in late 1620, when the Palatine cause was defeated at White Mountain, James would offer no such blows. He continued to listen to the returning Count Gondomar's advice. He continued to angrily suppress the slander set against him. He continued to accept a Spanish pension. He continued to pursue that elusive end of a marriage with a Spanish princess which would surely solve the problems of his family and of the realm. In the next episode, 
we'll continue our analysis of this mission which James was determined to pursue as we analyse the Spanish marriage idea in more detail. What did James hope to gain with its conclusion? Were such aims realistic? And did the marriage have a chance of being successfully concluded? Furthermore, when these negotiations broke down, spoiler alert, who was at fault? And can we discern in these negotiations a turning point in English foreign policy, whereby the king determined to become more active at the expense of Spain and to the rapturous delight of Frederick? All of these questions, and more, we'll address in the next episode, so I hope you'll join me for that, history friends, but until then, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to the 30 Years War episode 28. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show. Take care, mask up, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.